second session, which is more on building your investment portfolio. So I guess just to set the tone again, um, let's just hear from each of our speaker on what are the investments that they usually do. You can just do like a really quick one on your portfolios uh, in terms of like unit trust or things like that. So let's just start um, with maybe Ian, you can share on your portfolio in terms of the kind of investments that you go into and how do you build your portfolio? Okay, thanks Mima. My personal portfolio, I'm guessing, right? <laughs> uh, so I, I come from the school of thought that, that again, like I, I mentioned last week, is that I, I, I would like to have a certain quality of life. And while I am obviously interested in personal finance, I mean, there are some times where you just don't quite want to spend all your hours reading financial reports and spend all your time researching uh, finance. And if it's a single topic, it gets a little bit boring after a while. So for me personally, I like to split my portfolio into two sections. I would have one which is something that I really don't need to worry about, don't need to think about. Just put it there and then it kind of just generates its income over time. Uh, these are normally the lower risk uh, things. So this can be, uh, usually I have a mix of uh, uh, bond funds and stuff like that. And then after that, I have the growth portfolio. So for me, myself, um, I tend to, to be on a little bit on the slightly higher risk side, so perhaps maybe about 60 plus percent into the, into the uh, more dynamic investments, I like to call them. I, why I say dynamic? Because it could fluctuate downwards as well, whereas the secure stuff generally does not fluctuate downwards. It's just kind of like, can it go up and how much can it go up? So uh, of the dynamic side, I think a lot of, it's a, lot, a reason why a lot of people are here today. You want to know what you can do. Um, the, I have a mixture of funds, uh, unit trust funds, I have a few, um, and uh, quite a bit in stock portfolio and also quite a bit in uh, uh, overseas in the US market and uh, in the Singapore market as well. Um, so those need you to actually quite uh, some watch it a bit closer, but in the end, I still don't, I'm not like super day to day and every single hour, maybe uh, once a day, check in, things like that. And then maybe once a week, maybe you might want to make some adjustments. Yeah. So you have overseas um, portfolios as well. So I think that one might actually garner quite a number of questions because not all of us are very familiar with doing overseas portfolios. But that's fine. We will come to that. Um, maybe we can hear from Lexi first on her portfolios and what kind of, you know, your share of investments. Uh, I think for me, uh, I'm, I'm a bit skilled to investment savvy kind of people. So I have this habit I will read news every day in the early morning. So it's for me to keep track myself uh, and also follow closely to the market. So my, and also according to my age, uh, uh, I'm still very young. So my goal is to accu accumulate my wealth and also I want to build faster. I want to ge generate higher return. So for me, my portfolio is like 70% uh, more to skill towards uh, stocks and funds. So all this is a bit high risk and 70% is, uh, sorry, 30% is more uh, conservative. So I will put a bit uh, into uh, dividend funds or even some of the blue chip stock that give you dividend. My one is uh, a bit uh, fit to uh, risk taker, I would say. So you're so, a risk taker. Yes, I'm a risk taker. <laughs> and because I say already, my goal is to accumulate my wealth uh, in a faster pace. So, and also I think because nowadays a lot of youngsters that don't really follow up the market, that don't read news, I think this is very important, especially for the beginner. You really have to understand all these economics, uh, know how they're doing right now at this moment. Then you only can start to expose your uh, portfolio into a riskier investment. This is my personal thought. So now you've mentioned like, um, you know, because you're a risk taker, but cause that's because you're very experience and the same goes to Ian, you know, both of you are, I would call experts in financial uh, planning and personal finance. So what if somebody who, you know, uh, as a fresh grad or even somebody who's just felt like, you know, I really need to manage my finance, but at the same time, I don't want to just keep doing that savings thing. I mean, although we did say like, you know, you save more then you get more, but you want your money to work for you. So it's like money earning money, right? But, you know, I, let's say I just started and I want to know, how can I start first? Like, which are the products that I should go into first? So, um, each, any of you can just take that question. Uh, okay, I, I just want to echo a little bit what uh, Lexi said earlier about the fact that you read a lot of news. So, if, you, if that's something that you like, and, and, and by all means, if, if you really like that, then yeah, that's very good. And it's a very, forms a very strong basis on what uh, 
uh, invest or what the, you can do more risky investments. Problem is people who don't have the, I guess the, the capability in terms of time and, and availability, flexibility to just, uh, you know, move their investments around. They still want to do this and that's where it can get a little dangerous, right? If you don't have the interest, you don't have the, the, the know-how on how, let's say you, you have a financial report, but you don't quite know what is it you're supposed to identify in the report and things like that. So, uh, you know, it's very hard to make a decision. And so if you decide then to do into whatever risky investment, you will also, uh, you will probably run quite a, quite a high risk. Uh, but for, let's say, fresh graduates or, or people who are new and just want to start, maybe you don't, not necessarily a fresh graduate, you just want to start doing something about finance. I would say uh, you actually, I would recommend a, a fund normally, a, a unit trust of sorts. Now, unit trust, majority, a lot of them are not very uh, exciting. Uh, in fact, a lot of them lose money as well. You hear from uh, clients that, that basically they, they, they've done unit trust for years and they've lost a lot of money and then they, you know, they don't want to do unit trust anymore. Okay? So you choose a, choose a good fund, choose a fund that you know it, uh, is very strong uh, in management, right? Because what is the value of a fund? The fund basically you're hiring a manager to manage the fund for you and you pay annual management fees, right? So you need to evaluate how has that management done. And if the management has done, they've exceeded the benchmark, you see the decisions they've made when, when the market happens here and there, uh, and you like their management style, and you like the way they do everything, and of course, there are results, those funds are generally a bit better. Uh, of course, the asset must be good. Huh? So if you want to invest in, let's say, a particular country, and there's a fund for that country, hopefully that country is uh, you know, a growing country and not a country with... Uh, you know, uh, government problems and things like that. So I would say that's a very good start. Uh, if, but you still, you see, you still need to evaluate the fund. You still need to go and... Yeah, I was just about right? to cut you in there. So, so this is the medium level. This, you don't have to choose the individual asset just to evaluate the management. Now, if you don't want to do that, if you don't want to do that and you want to be a little bit more sort of, um, I guess, uh, hands-off, right? Uh, there are... Uh, some normally fixed income uh, funds, uh, there are some bond funds, there are some, and some of these are from insurance companies, but again, very, very dangerous to be, to, to, be, to be mentioning that not all of them insurance companies are good. Some of these products uh, are pretty much mindless, put your money in there, you get 4 to 5% per annum net returns and, and that's it, right? It's not going to take you very, very far, but if you don't have the time to do things, you're you know, just starting your career grinding right in, 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 the, in the corporate ladder, right? And you just want your money to grow at four to five percent. I think that's 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 fair to say. Uh, you could do that, but you do need to do the more exciting stuff later on. Otherwise, it's kind of like your engine, your car is going at gear, uh, second gear the whole time. <laughs> You're not going any much faster. So you are suggesting um, basically unit trust will be the sort of like the starting starting stepping stone in 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 opening yourself up to the investment world. I wouldn't say a, a product specific because. If you want to start your portfolio, I would normally recommend do something which, uh, you know, if, if you don't have to manage it, right? Do something that if you could go to sleep, you are comfortable with it. Because what happens if you start something risky, first thing first, and you're not the risk taker type, right? You lo then you lose 20%. You may be scared. You may be, you know, your, your knee-jerk reaction will be, oh, don't do anything. Everything put in FD, fixed deposits, right? So you want to start something that is a little more conservative. Right? Something that you don't have to worry about. I call this kind of like the foundation of your investment, your, you know, your portfolio stabilizer. Something that, you know, in the worst case scenario, you know you get your 3 4 5%, whatever it is. So once you have that done, and the size of that depends on how much risk or how, how much fluctuation you can tolerate. Now, risk, I think, shouldn't really be a risk of absolute loss, right? So people say, oh, you want to invest in this particular asset, this particular stock, what's the risk? The risk is more like how much fluctuation can you handle, right? assuming you haven't bought anything speculative, right? So uh, yeah, do something that you don't have to worry about, that is stable, secure, solid, does your 4%, 5% thereabouts per annum. And then depending on how much risk you are willing to take, then the rest of your portfolio is in something more fancy. And if you finish the fancy stuff, then okay, speculative after that, you know, that's more or less gambling already, but some people do get excitement from that. Okay, we, we will pause the speculative part first. Uh, maybe Lexi can share your views on, you know, for someone who just started uh, on investment and really, you know, like what Ian has really mentioned, sometimes you really want to burn your fingers, you don't want to burn your hands. You know, if you go into stock market straight away, you can actually end up losing about 20% or even 100 over percent, right? So what's your take on um, helping people to start off with investment and getting interested in it? 
I think I'm quite agree with Ian because of what I usually do with my clients, uh, I also will suggest Unitrans because that would be the easiest way that doesn't need, I mean, uh, my, uh, my customer doesn't need to handle their portfolio uh, manually. So because they are the fund manager, uh, we'll be there for, to manage the fund for use. But maybe I give a little bit of practical tips on evaluating some of the Unitrust funds. Because a lot of people say, oh, I want to buy Unitrust, but uh, how then you want to evaluate whether the funds is good or not? I think maybe a couple of uh, things we need, we need to consider is that the asset under management, Okay, the means the fund size. I think the bigger the fund size is, then it will actually shows that the confidence of the investor towards the fund itself. And secondly, it also we'll talk about, let's say the fund size is very big. It also indicates that uh, the liquidity of the fund. So which means whenever all these investors, when they want to pull money out, they want to redraw, okay, it will actually affect the uh, fund price performance. So I think the liquidity, the fund size itself is very important. First thing, you need to look at the fund size. Secondly, the volatility, the historical performance. So in the way that if you look at the historical performance of this fund, you can, uh, in a way to tell you that how good are this fund uh, doing for the past uh, few years. So also in a way to tell you hey, what is the management style of the fund manager. Because not everyone understand how this fund manager manage their fund. So this will be some of the very uh, practical skill for you to evaluate. And also, whenever we want to buy Unitrans, right, a lot of people maybe overlook this uh, uh, sale charge. When they, whenever they buy this Unitrans, we have to pay for the fund manager, right? So what we pay other than the management fee, like what Ian said earlier, okay, you also have to pay the sale charge. So in the market itself, let's say you go to bank, normally bank will charge you like 5%, okay? But there is an alternative way to get a cheaper fund, like a fund supermarket, my personal opinion. If you can read all these uh, simple things uh, like no picking uh, fixed income funds or whatever, you can go to the uh, fund supermarket to get the uh, best fund for yourself. So there are there are also a lot of tools uh, and analysis tool uh, at the website itself. Yeah, this would be some of the skill that these young people can take away from there. And also uh, a bit disagree like uh, like what if let's say you want to invest into stock market, not necessary. You will burn your hands. My suggestion, my suggestion is that uh, for all these uh, new beginner, they can actually go to get some uh, dividend fund like Maybank stocks. I'm not giving a stock tips, just a, a way for you to uh, get some very conservative stocks that give you a very consistent uh, stock prices and also give you a dividend. I think these are uh, one of the very alternative solutions if you want to go into a stock market. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So, uh, so you're more on suggesting like, as long as you get a stock that pays you more than uh, FD is paying you, then you're sort of already in, in the investment, right? I mean, uh, like... Uh, not necessary. Um, what I'm saying is that you can get your funds into some of the blue chip stocks. Ah, uh, okay. First, first thing, their prices is very uh, resilient, first thing. Secondly, they give you dividend. So for the beginner, they don't know how to evaluate all these stocks, right? Especially those penny stocks that worth uh, $1 or below. It's very hard for you to tackle the timing, you know. Uh, it's a bit hard for you to generate return if you don't really uh, understand the industry, you know. So in a way, uh, for the beginner, all these people like to buy blue chip stock, which uh, volatility is very low. I, I, I can for sure, uh, volatility is very low. And then they also give you consistent dividend. So it's quite practical way for you to get, in, get your portfolio exposed into this kind of uh, stock, you know. All right, thank you so much, Ian and Lexi, on sharing. Um, let's just uh, go to some questions first. Uh, so we've been talking about Unitrust for a bit. So there is a question on Unitrust, which is um, which is actually better way to start investing. Do you use your do you use sorry do you use your EPF money or do you use the amount that you've willingly set aside? Can I take this one? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. Um, I I have a and and it's not the be all and all uh, kind of mindset but i do have a quite a strong opinion that i do not recommend you to take your epf money out to invest in unit trust why uh epf has shown to be itself to be for a long period of time first of all you know your, your capital is, is secure so you're taking something from your stabilizer or from your foundation you're cannibalizing your foundation into something higher risk first thing first next thing 
you are going from left pocket to right pocket. So by moving your money from EPF to unit trust, you have not done any additional spending. In fact, you have just imposed additional charges on yourself. So left pocket to right pocket minus fees, right? So uh, this I find in practical, uh, you know, in, in, real, in what happens really is people fool themselves into thinking, whoa, I've done some investment. I signed the paper, transferred 10,000 ringgit. But you haven't increased your investment. You haven't done anything else. And in fact, you've paid more fees. So you've actually not done anything, but you feel you've done something finances and then you don't do anything after that. So, so this, this, this is a problem that, that, that happens in real life. Um, but that being said, it is not a definitely a bad choice. If you've got 500,000, 1 million in your EPF, right? Okay, then it makes sense to diversify a little bit out, right? If, if your EPF is 80% of your entire network, let's say, give an example, and EPF is all like safe foundation level investment, then it makes sense to move 20, 30% out of it into something a bit more uh, risky, right? especially if you've got time, especially if you're in your you know, late 30s or, or thereabouts, I think thereabouts you probably have a million. So yeah, you, I would say that institution would, but in general, it is not, uh, I would not recommend it. Uh, although I do know a lot of uh, unit trust agents will come and tell you, oh, you see EPF, 5%, see my fund, 18%, but the fund has done 18% one year, next year lose money, one year up, one year down. Effectively, you, you affect, uh, average out the compounding rate of return, eh, not too much different. And you run a lot of uh, risk with the, with the fund, whereby you know, if it drops, and oh goodness, I've just lost 10% of my retirement money. Whereas EPF, you know, I, every year they declare whatever, 5% thereabouts. Yeah, that's my opinion. All right, so I guess, um, I hope Ian answers your question in terms of whether do you sell it's like So, of course, EPF, you know, try not to, I guess, you know, the message is just try not to touch your EPF money and save as much as you can um, in order to start investing. So let's um, move on to some other questions. So, okay, so this person was asking, do I you so again, it's, it's all on EPF, like is, you know, is EPF a better saving route or is discretionary mutual fund or direct investment better in terms for someone who is in an early uh, side of the career? So uh, let me reiterate the question again. Is social security slash EPF a better saving route versus discretion, discretionary mutual fund or other direct investments, especially when uh, this person is just in the, their very early career days? Uh, so if you're saying that you're at the early early stage in your career, uh, my recommendation is that identify what your what, what is your needs first. If you want to, what is your goal first? So if you think that you need to accum accumulate wealth at your early stage, you want to buy houses in before age 30, you want to buy a car before age 30, then probably if you are just earning uh, passive income, uh, it's not enough, you know. So you have to really generate higher return. So um, for your questions, just now you were saying that uh, is, uh, EPF is a better way for you to in keep uh, for your investment. I would say uh, like what Ian said earlier, uh, don't, ever, don't ever touch your EPF if you doesn't need to, okay? It's about taking your left hand uh, pocket to your right hand. So I would suggest you to keep it, uh, in, keep your investment in the EPF, don't take it out. Okay, but if you have an extra monies, you have extra savings, okay, you can actually put it into mutual funds. If you doesn't have the expertise to evaluate all these funds, you don't know how to read, you know, you can either go to mutual funds so you can leverage on the fund manager expertise to manage for you. And secondly, or maybe if you don't, if you want someone to, because some people, they might need human touch services. So you actually can go to, uh, no find someone like Ian, Give you professional advice, or even you can find a banker to give you advice as well. Okay, I hope that. Uh, hope that. One, one more thing about it, yeah. yeah. Uh, think about, talk about uh, allocating, uh, and you know what? EPF is. I'm very happy. With, I'm fine with EPF, but if you think about it from your salary, right? Eleven percent goes to EPF. Employer gives you twelve or thirteen percent. So that means about 25, 20, 20 plus percent of your salary is already going into EPF. Uh, and so I think there is some benefit to doing something else other than that. I mean, you can, of course, add on, but then you have 30, 40, 50% in EPF. Now, it, it's safe, but you might not want to have everything in one basket. All right, that was yeah, nicely put. Uh, don't put all your eggs into one basket. So you were talking about uh, mutual funds and then unit trust and all that. Just because, you know, we all don't know how to evaluate the reports on probably haven't reached that point where you learn how to evaluate reports. So there was this question on asking, 
let's let's talk about evaluating reports for a bit. Um, for both of you, you know, when you do your evaluations and things like that, what do you actually look for in the reports and what are the details that you actually look like the quick, I don't know if you have a guide, a top five kind of thing where, you know, these are the things that I want to have. Make sure it's, as long as the top five items are healthy, then yes, I think this is, uh, it's good. So yeah, maybe Ian or Lexi can. I think Lexi is more qualified for this. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, okay. Yeah, Lexi. Uh, yeah. Me, uh, if I look at the Malaysian markets, generally I will look at one thing, uh, which is the cash flow. Because for me, cash flow is pretty important, especially for all these businesses. So uh, if you have a very healthy uh, cash flow, I think, I don't want to go in that, okay? But generally, if you have a very good cash flow, I think it's good, okay? And then also your debt levels, not too high. So how to, how, how, how do you want to identify whether it's very high, uh, is the company is coming with a heavy debt or light debt or not? Then you have to compare with the peers as well, okay? So a lot of uh, technical skill we need to learn. But rather things like so many, so many metrics we need to look at other than cash flow that and maybe profitability is very important. So let's say you are buying kind of a, you know, dividend stocks. Most importantly, you have to look at how much this company earning right now. And then does the company give out dividend? Then you have to look at their profitability means their uh, revenue net profit. So if the company generating negative profit, right, is pretty for sure they can't, they can't even give out, distribute any dividend for you. So this is something that I will look at basically. So other than that, uh, when I decide uh, to get a stock, buy a stock, right, I will also look at some of the metrics like PE ratio. It will identify whether the stock is uh, very expensive or undervalued, okay? So PE and also uh, price to book ratios. So how they even read this, you can actually uh, go through one apps that uh, which I usually use, uh, you can go through this, uh, download, download this app called KLSC Screener. So they actually simplify all these things for you to uh, look at. It for, especially for those beginners, they don't know how to read out this report, don't know where to get the annual report, okay? Then you can actually go to this apps KLSC Screener to get it. And then they will actually simplify all these uh, metrics for you to have a look, yeah. Okay. The easiest. All right, so um, Calacy Screener. Will, so these are the, the these are the items that you usually uh, advise people to have a look, and and you definitely can use Calacy Screener to help you in that. So let's um, thanks, Lexi. So let's answer some questions. Someone did ask. Um, all right, so we've done on like the evaluating and stuff. Let's let's say that okay now I kind of know I I put some in unit trust and I've already put some in uh, mutual funds. So how do we actually design a portfolio? Yeah, so maybe Ian, you can answer, you know, in terms of when you advise your, your clients on their portfolios, what, how many percent do they put in this, this portfolio and that investment and these other investments? All right, uh, the general, general rules, the guidelines more like, it, because at the end of the day, portfolios are a very personal, personal thing. Uh, but the general rules I would say is that, think about yourself building, a building, let's say, let's say we're building KLCC, right? So you've got all your blueprints, you've got all your approvals, everything, and now you're breaking ground. So what do you do first? You always start with the foundation, right? Uh, nobody starts building the bridge first. They, they build the foundation. So the foundation normally takes a bit longer than everything else. You want to make sure everything is stable, uh, so much so that your building, when market shocks happen or, you know, uh, earthquakes, whatever it is, then it doesn't affect the building. So you build your foundation and then you slowly build up the building and you're to the top is the exciting bit. Uh, but the, here's the thing, uh, I understand also some, sometimes uh, people get a little bit uh, focused on the fun stuff, right? Because you go to KLCC, does anybody take a photo of the foundation? You don't, you don't do that. You take a photo with the bridge, with the tower, things like this. So when you build your portfolio, you need to be aware that yes, you need a foundation. Yes, it's going to be really boring. <laughs> your foundation is just kind of leave it there. And, and after that, then you start to build the rest of your portfolio, perhaps in something which is a little bit more uh, dynamic. The spread... I guess you know, in how much money to put into something more dynamic is something that I, you should not need, I would say at least in a couple of years. Uh, any money that you need within the next two years, you just put it in fixed deposit because you don't want to worry about that. You don't want to risk that. Uh, the problem with a lot of people panic pulling from the market. So you put money into the market, it fluctuates, but you know the, the investment is good, it's going to go up. Uh, then you live in there, right? 
Um, of course, there are more advanced techniques, you know, pull out when you tie and stuff like that. But generally, if it's good, you live in there. Uh, people panic pull out because they say, oh, I need the money now or they're forced to pull out at wrong times. And I've had clients who, who I advise them against it, but they also, you know, suddenly, urgently, whatever, need the money because of the allocated stuff that didn't work well. So portfolio-wise, uh, yeah, start with foundation, build something a little bit more medium and then when you have the capability, then you do a little bit more risky. So about then, the next question is, what, how many baskets to allocate to, right? So a general rule of thumb, I would say is, um, do not over-invest. So in finance, there's, a, there's like a diminishing curve. Once you over-diversify, over, over, over so it, there's no more benefit. So I would say, try to stick to max, for the starters, five allocations. 20% of your investable cash into each. Now, if 20% of your investable cash is like, 2,000 bucks, then, then don't break into five, break into two. You have 10,000 ringgit to invest, maybe break into two, right? Because whatever you invest, you do want to invest a, a reasonable sum, a significant sum, we call it. Imagine you put 1,000 bucks, I say, oh, Mehua, you've made uh, 20% this year. Fantastic. You say, oh, uh, from my returns, what can I do now? I say, oh, you've made about 180, 90 bucks return. Say, oh, and then you sort of takes the wind out of your sales, right? So invest a decent sum um, and try to aim for maximum, I guess, five. When, you, when you're a multi-millionaire, then you can perhaps look at more. So um, so what are the five that you would, uh, you usually recommend your clients who just started? Uh, normally we start, okay, first, first thing first, I always like to do uh, a foundation. So the foundation, um, my go-to, my go-to is a, uh, a bond-related endowment. So it's an endowment through insurance company, but it's about 4 to 5% uh, effective return compounding per annum, and it doesn't have insurance on it. So it's a very strange, rare product. Uh, but yeah, I do that one. So that one, we do that. And then after we do something a bit more growth, uh, medium-risk uh, unit trust funds, uh, and then I allocate a certain portion for them because some people do want to feel that, and especially uh, youth nowadays, right? You want to play around a little bit, right? So I, we allocate a portion for them to do something a bit more uh, on their own. So these are the three, right? And then after that, the fourth one usually is property at some point close to 30. And number five depends on uh, some people, they want to be speculative and, or they want to follow trends and then you have your cryptocurrencies and, and you know, alternative investments. Yeah. So now that you brought up cryptocurrency, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, as you know, someone who invests and very well known with the markets and things like that, which we will come back later on. What are your views on cryptocurrency investing? So in any investment, so the word is that you invest, right? So which means you've put your money somewhere that you see value, okay? So the Bitcoin, let's say, let's use Bitcoin, for example. Yeah? Crypto, Bitcoin is probably the most famous one. You looked at the, the graph of how it, you know, how it jumped to 20,000 20, 20, USD and then it came down and going back up a bit, things like that. So you ask yourself, if you were to put your money in there, what is the value of Bitcoin, and you listen around and things like that. Now, there are those who are really into this crypto world, right? And they will say things like the blockchain technology, which I, I'm not an expert. I've just heard things like this, right? And you want to invest in this blockchain technology. In that case, I would say, okay, there's value in that. This is a new technology that may come up, blah, 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 blah. But the majority of people investing in Bitcoin, initially at the, the big burst at 20,000 20, USD, was that uh, it was a very anti-establishment uh, uh, sort of a feeling that I got from all the people who had invested. They said, oh, my friends are doing it, you know, it's going to break the banks and I don't have to pay uh, foreign exchange fees, you know, and people can't track what I'm buying. Okay, cool, that's, that's, that's fine. But you, you are valuing an unregulated thing, something that is fighting regulation in a world which is highly regulated. And uh, at that point in time, I basically said, do you think the governments, the banks are going to allow this. Now, they will not allow it for one simple reason. They cannot tax you. <laughs> so, and true enough, uh, after we heard the stories about the hawker store girl in Puchong who was collecting Bitcoin, Bank Nagar issued statement, not allowed. Then you see the other governments around the world not allowing things. Of course, the more progressive governments, they say, okay, we have an ATM, which can become, but then it's the idea. So you put your money in something that is not being allowed by the world, right? So you're always going to be like a black market kind uh, of thing. So I, I don't see so much value in that. But then there are those who really know about the technology, I guess, in that case. But then, then they have all sorts of other cryptocurrencies now, Ethereum and all these other things. So yeah, those perhaps are investing more directly. I, I don't claim to be an expert on this. But mindset-wise, I find cryptocurrency to be a very a trend which people have 
bought into uh, the hype. Okay. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, maybe we just start a bit on the cryptocurrency before, you know, everybody got very, very excited. Um, let's come back to investing. And um, so there was a question on Stash Away. I'm sure uh, Lexi and Ian has heard about it, this platform where it's, uh, do you think Stash Away is a platform for somebody who wants to learn investing? Do you think that would be a, a good platform? I mean, of course, I know Ian, you provide um, personal finance, uh, you know, you, you help you help your clients to plan and obviously you say that you're, <laughs> you, they can come to you, but what if somebody, you know, their friends or anything who has no chance to meet you or anything, uh, would Stash Away, would you recommend uh, platforms like this or would you prefer if they, you know, go and see a banker or in fact, a, a financial planner to handle their, uh, basically to advise on investing? Okay, I, I definitely want to hear what Lexi has to say on Stash Away. Um, so, so, so Lexi, make sure you, you comment after this, yeah? Um, okay. Okay, but uh, let's, say, let's say Stash Away, right? So, if you want to learn how to invest, right, I don't think the benefit is coming directly from investing in Stash Away. I think it's from Stash Away's many classes that they have. I think that's where you would learn the most. And you, I don't, you don't need to be an investor to, to go for the classes if I'm not wrong. Um, in terms of investing in Stash Away uh, as a beginner and things like this, if you know how much money you should be setting aside for whatever purpose, let's say you, you've done your calculations, you've done your financial planning, you know, okay, 500 a month needs to go there. Or, and I need to find some investment to, uh, to grow this 500 ringgit a month, right? Stashway works perfectly fine then, right? But Stashway has a little, uh, is a bit of a problem because then you, you have to figure out all these things first, right? It doesn't really tell you uh, how much you should be spending here and there, how to adjust your cash flow and all these sort of things. So I guess uh, it's more of the solution. So if you know how much you want to invest, whatever, I think it's a perfectly fine uh, um, sort of uh, instrument. I, 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 when I first started, I ran and looked at it, the, their projected return. Of course, I think now it's, it may have changed a little bit. They projected between 3 to 9%. So I just want to highlight why, why I singled this out because they have highlighted a single digit return. And normally when an when a investment firm highlights to me a single digit return, um, I, I tend to take them a bit more seriously because they are, you know, something more realistic. And of course their asset class is in, in exchange rate of funds. So I know a lot of questions on ETFs also as well. But uh, another thing I want to say about banks, uh, okay, just want to add on. You got to understand that banks primary, I guess, business is to give out loans and collect interest. This is their primary business, right? You as a depositor and all that, you are the raw material. <laughs> so if you rely too much on the banks and what the bank staff has to sell you and set you, uh, I sometimes, of course, they are good bankers. Huh? I hope, hope for the bankers in the chat, I, I, they are good bankers. Sometimes it may be more for their sales or whatever they have, uh, you know, for that month or that quota for that week or whatever it is. So you have to be a bit careful with what they tell you to do and advise you to do. Yeah, okay. Over to Lexi. Uh, actually, I quite agree with what Ian say, but uh, I think it really depends on personal needs. Because some people, I, as I said earlier, some people maybe like human touch services. Some people uh, can do it without seeing the person. So it really depends. Just like how you buy insurance, you can buy through digital platform. You don't need an advisor. But some people need so it really depends on your personal needs, I, I would say, yeah. For me, I will definitely go for human touch services. You know, you can ask more questions, you can go more in-depth uh, you know, uh, analysis, uh, and the client advisor maybe know you more, better than the robot, maybe, maybe. So it really depends on your needs and your knowledge, your experience. So for some people, they don't really understand how this platform works, you know, uh, maybe they can start from the, uh, uh, start with the advisor first, then slowly when they gain the knowledge, then they, then they only can uh, go for this kind of platform. Okay, alright, very nice. Can I just add on just a, a little bit yeah, sure. uh, regarding the human touch thing, it's just well, human touch business, right? Um, normally for robo-advisors, not just special it's just robo-advisors, things that use algorithms and stuff like that. Uh, of course, they will get more advanced and perhaps in that time, they may be a bit better. But I find, again, like what Lexi said, uh, there is no replacement for uh, the, the, the human connection when it comes to personal finance. Now you think about it, money, uh, a lot of the, I think, okay, okay I hope nobody stash away is in the, in the chat, right? <laughs> okay, uh, I know stash away works together with uh, Lin and Olivia as well. Uh, a lot of things says, let's take the emotion out of investing and, and stuff like this. And to an extent, yes, you, when you make investment decisions, you don't want to be very emotional. 
But what are you investing for? You are investing and you're managing your money for your own personal goals, right? And we are human beings. Human beings, and I think a lot of us can agree, are generally emotional creatures. There is a whole like this like study on uh, on this uh, industry called behavioral finance, behavioral economics, because they realized that you kind of have to take into account the the human aspect of finance. And a robot will have trouble doing this. I'll give you an example. Let's say you earn five thousand bucks a month, right? And you give your parents, especially as Asians, you give your parents five hundred bucks a month, right? You earn five thousand, give your parents five hundred. Now, from a purely financial planning point of view. That is a waste of money. It does nothing for you, okay? But emotionally, it's required. Culturally, it's required, you know? Or, you know, if you are the type where you don't really want to give, but if you don't give, then your parents will nag you every day, so you want peace of mind, things like this. So how much should you do? That's a very subjective thing. You, you should do a little bit, but if, you are, if you're giving half your salary away, then I guess that's probably you shouldn't do that, right? It's a very subjective thing. Um, I, also, another example I like to tell people is that, let's say that I meet this guy. Right? He earns 3000 3005 um, pretty simple guy, suffers from depression a little bit. And he gives his mother 2,000 ringgit uh, a month, okay, for her to, 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 to treat her and to take care of her. He's a very low lifestyle kind of guy, right? Now, from a financial point of view, if I don't understand him as a person, which only a person can understand, I would tell him, hey, look, you need to reduce this 2,000 a month to your mother. Uh, give her maybe 500 and the rest you invest and take care of yourself. But if I understand him correctly, I realize that his purpose in the world is to thank his mother for raising him, right? So he finds his purpose on what, what drives him to, to, to continue living is because he can give back to his mother. So if I tell him to cut this 2,000 ringgit, then he's going to, he's I'm not going to listen to me, or he's going to think that if he does it, then there's no reason to live anymore. So very, very careful with, uh, you know, uh, with the subjective emotional part of, of personal finance. So robots, perhaps one day, eh, now mom, only if you know exactly what you're going to do. So I guess it's always back to up to preference and how yeah. comfortable that person really is in terms of your finances and uh, in terms of the money that you're putting it away as well. So definitely, um, it's a subject for debate and no right or wrong here. And yes, Ian, you're very right. We are actually very close to Stashaway. Lini Malaysia is close to Stashaway. Alright, so let's answer some questions. Um, Alright, so somebody did ask, this is interesting, uh, which we have discussed previously as well. Uh, if we've already invested in ETFs via platforms like Stashaway, <laughs> buying unit trust and on top of EPF, does investment link product for an insurance can be considered <laughs> you, you just popped out suddenly can be considered as a part of my portfolio in investing? Answer is no. <laughs> so that's okay, a um, you know from, to, from to understand okay so investment link insurance is you have to break down the words. It is not insurance with investment. So it doesn't constitute an investment plus an insurance to you. It is an insurance policy whose funding is tied to an investment fund. So effectively, uh, without paper, a bit hard to draw the graph, right? But effectively, what happens is you overpay for your premiums now. And that overpayment is invested in whatever fund so that it compensates for your future where you underpay your insurance, okay? So I'm gonna repeat that. When you are younger, you overpay your insurance. That money is invested so that in the future, your future premiums are lower. So you don't have to pay so high, right? Now, if you can't take this as an investment to you, which means this surplus that you have been generating over the years, which is originally for your future insurance, you have taken money that was supposed to subsidize your future insurance and you use it for something else, which means then you either lose insurance because you cannot afford the high payment or you actually pay the very, very high payment. So it doesn't constitute an investment for you. It doesn't, doesn't result. Now, insurance companies, some, they do allow you to invest directly into the, uh, the, the funds. And they are also called investment insurance, but not as common and not all companies have. And agents don't usually sell because commission, same as unit trust, very, very low. To which case, I would say, why don't you just buy unit trust? All right. Thank you. Uh, thank you. And I hope Ian answers uh, one of the participants' question, which was in Slido, on, in terms of that question. Um, let's move on a little bit. So now that we, uh, you know, let's say that we've, we've become like the big girls and the big boys in investment, very well 
you know, very well reserved. So we know what's going to happen. We know what we're doing. Um, so Ian, in the beginning, you meant, you did mention about your uh, portfolio and it involved um, obviously overseas portfolios. So there are a couple of questions here in terms of overseas kind of investment. Uh, but before I go into overseas, we're going to talk about things like trade uh, futures and credit default swaps. So someone did ask, like, would you suggest to invest in trade futures or CDS, which is credit default swap? Uh, maybe like C can I think credit default swap is not applicable for the retail investor, to be honest. Why you want to buy the credit default swap? First thing is that when these people, investor, they bought, uh, let's say, bond from some of the company, and you think that the company might go bankrupt in some day, but you don't know, then maybe you will go for the credit default swap. I think it's very important to understand what is the purpose of using CDS. You know, and this CDS usually is applies to fund managers or uh, others, uh, you know, uh, all these insti financial institutional that might use these instruments to hedge their positions. So it's not all the way like retail investors don't use this usually. Mm. To be honest, we don't use this. And also futures. Futures, you, you, depends on what kind of future you want to buy. So let's say a lot of people uh, came to me can came to me and asked me about, hey, can I actually buy oil futures? Yes, you can. But let's say the contract expired, you are go you are getting a barrels of oil, you know. So we have to understand what's the risk behind of that. And no one actually predicts that oil actually went down to negative range. No one can predict it. And what happened is that if you get the negative, uh, let's say the contract expired already and get ne negative, you are making losses, you know. So you have to take you have to take this into consideration. Is it very suitable for you? And also the minimum investment amount is not small. I would say it's very big amount. Unless you are very rich, you have plenty of money, then you can go for it. But for the retail investor, these are like bonds, okay? Bonds, you can get it from banks, okay? Because it's over the counter products. You can get it from banks and uh, Unitrans. You can even get structural products. But I'm not going to suggest you to buy futures or buy a CDS. And CDS is not, uh, it's not something, it's not the financial uh, investment tools for the uh, retail clients because it's uh, over the counter products. You have to get uh, get the product from the bank itself. You cannot get uh, through, you know, uh, all these digital platform like Fun Supermarket. You can't get it because it's uh, over the counter products. So before you want to invest, uh, invest into this kind of investment, understand what are these instruments are. You know, it's very important. And is it applicable for this retail investor? Is it very fit you? Are you able to take the risk? All right. Thank you so much, Lexi, for, for the answer. And to the participant who actually asked this question, if you want to understand further, Lexi has already also offered her lifeline, which we will share to you. So you can always email her and ask her more questions. And yeah, so let's try to cover more questions. Uh, we have quite a number here. Uh, so maybe towards Ian, um, so, I mean, you talked about overseas market and you know, your portfolio. So there was a question that asked, what would be the best instrument to gain exposure to the overseas market for a retail investor? I would actually say the S&P 500 ETF, right? Exchange Trader Fund, uh, S&P 500, one of them. I think would be a good choice. Now, the problem with overseas investing um, <clears throat> is that for the layman or person who has a full-time job, you may not have the exposure to the news or the updates as quickly as somebody who uh, perhaps like Lexi follows the US market, right? The whole thing. So that means you cannot react fast enough. You know, um, if, if Trump tweets something and you are asleep, uh, that could be very bad, right? Uh, so you want to reduce the amount of personal management that you need to do, but you want the exposure of the market. And the US market, uh, due to their culture, is very heavily focused on increase of stock price. So uh, S&P 500, of course, are the uh, group 500 companies. So I think it's really relatively well diversified. Um, so yeah, just put it in there. And basically an exchange traded fund, what they do is they track, they, they follow the index and you kind of know the US market will go up. So just put it there and you're exposed to that market. Other Asian markets, uh, normally not as, um, I guess, not as appealing because the Asian culture, uh, 
does not prioritize the stock price as much as the US. So, I mean, if you buy stocks, you want the price to go up, right? So the US really, 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 it's, it's in the capitalism kind of uh, mindset to, to, to maximize stock price. Okay? So most of the wealth of America's billionaires are actually on stocks. So uh, it's the US market. So how you want to invest in the, in the US market, let's say you want to buy an ETF, ETF is like a stock, right? You just get, uh, and you just get one of these platforms. Uh, I, there are a couple around. I don't profess to be uh, expert on any of these particular platforms. Uh, but make sure it's legit, you know, you can do some research on what type, as long as you like it, you find the fees are fine, get that, you open that account, transfer the money there. You have to tell your bank the reason you are transferring. And then after that, then uh, you decide to buy an overtime. So I normally don't recommend to just throw the whole lump sum in, unless you are sure you're at the bottom of the trough, uh, which I guess is end of March. But uh, yeah, just put in time over time, maybe every month, put a certain amount of money in there, buy a certain amount of that. I think that would be good enough. Uh, if you are the type to buy and sell stocks, particularly in overseas markets, I probably this you wouldn't be listening to tuning into this. <laughs> yeah, it'll probably be very good at it already. Thanks, thanks, Ian. All right, so um, we have about eight minutes left, and let's try to talk a little bit about um, your views on the market. So uh, there was a question that asked, "What are your views on the Malaysian stock market?" Um, because there seem to be some government-owned funds that are controlled by a majority of the company. So this person really wants to know how can we leverage and, you know, actually earn in this type of market. Like, see? <laughs> okay, I take it. I think for Malaysian markets, uh, I personally think that 90% 90, 90 of the stocks is in the trading basis. Okay, and our Malaysia stock is pretty small, I would say. It's like the Apple market cap can actually bought the entire Malaysian stock market. So I would say for this current moment, okay, because of this COVID pandemic, actually our, uh, since like what Ian said earlier, uh, since the early of March, the stock market came down a lot, but after that, actually went up crazily. Okay, so what's the reason behind of it? It's pretty simple, it's because of, uh, of this stimulus. And people also think that uh, because now economy, or Malaysia economy is opened up at this moment, so we might see the economy to start recovery, First thing. Secondly, China economy is open uh, now. And you see recently all these export, Chinese export, import, all uh, also see a sign of recovery at, uh, as well. But uh, if you were, if I were to suggest you, uh, because my investment philosophy, philosophy is more to uh, fundamental. I believe that right now, if the economy is not, the global economy is not doing well at this moment, I believe we still can wait for it, okay? Because a lot of people think that uh, now actually stock market going up, then I should chase it, you know, uh, when the stock go up, then I buy in again. But not many people will do that uh, in the sense that when the stock market came down, then I will buy. So my, uh, my investment philosophy is more to like, just wait for it. I believe there is a better pricing. Uh, there's a market correction in the near future. So have to wait for it unless we see all these Asian countries, their economies is open up. We see China uh, economies is run quickly. Then we we might we might turn another view and go into uh, more Malaysia stock. But also uh, I cannot cannot say we should overlook the equity market. Okay. Uh, sometimes like right now, if you let's say we need masks, right? We need masks. We need uh, some of the glove products. You see some of these counter like Hatalega, Top Glove, Ocean Cash, they all went up quite quite fast, I would say. But if you are not very well versed in the market, you don't follow the market, it's a bit hard for you to catch the pricing. And don't ever time the market, I would say. So a lot you of us like to time the, time the market. We like to time like, oh yeah, this stock going up, then I should uh, uh, write on it and continue to buy. But not all the time uh, you can time the market precisely not necessary all the time you can earn money, you know. So not to time the market for retail investor, I would suggest you not to time the market. If you have extra money and you think that the stock price is cheap enough, just go in. This is what I do. If you think it's cheap enough, okay, like just why I told you that how I evaluate some of the company using PE, PB. If you think it's very cheap, just go in, okay, and don't ever treat the stock because a lot of people like to treat the stock. They think that, oh, within a one week, yes, I can generate 10 to 20% return. Yes, some people might be able to do it, like traders. 
or some people that actually follow the market closely, they might able to generate this kind of return. But for the retail investor, you are, if you are not very well versed to the market, you are not following the market. Like what Ian said, if you are for Ashley, you know, sometimes uh, uh, let's say the Donald Trump uh, suddenly tweeted something and you, you might miss the opportunity and you might uh, make losses, you know. So for the, if you are not very good at it, then just buy some of the stock that you think you are cheap. You think it's cheap, just buy and then hold it for long term. And I think right now, some of the big companies, their stock prices is undervalued, I would say. Some of the company, their stock prices is undervalued. You can actually you know, do some homework, okay? If some people don't even know where to get the stock ideas for the very layman people, you can actually look at EPF top holdings. Another solution, if you don't know what, what to pay, you don't know what to invest, you can actually go and search for the EPF top holding because they did their homework, they know what to invest, they know which one got the catalyst, you can just follow. Another way, if you can't even reinterpret all these financial statements, you can go for this method to find out the stock idea. Thank you so much, Lexi. I think uh, you kind of helped a bit, uh, you know, in, in giving some of your tips and your way of investing. Um, so you did mention that, you know, it's not for everybody in terms of like, you know, if we don't really follow the market or in fact, we're not very uh, good at it. I mean, because not all of us actually studied finance to actually understand PE ratio and things like that. So do you recommend or do you have any uh, websites or even any books that you kind of actually use in terms of uh, start for someone that you will recommend to someone who wants to start in investing so is there any website that you think it's actually quite useful for a, a beginner or even anybody who just wants to enhance their investment skills and things like that and probably ian can also chip in in terms of that i think um actually i have uh, some website i usually will look at but maybe if you want to know more you can actually pm me i will give you the tips okay like yeah, I will give you an email, then you just uh you just email to me, I will give you what are the website that I usually will look at because it's a bit personal. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if you mention the books, right? I think for a beginner can actually look at one book. I think it's pretty good. Uh they call it The Intel Intelligence Investor by Benjamin uh, Graham. Not sure, I think uh not sure I don't know it knows about it or not, but this book is very, very good. And also another book that I would recommend is uh, Beating the Street by Peter Lynch. It will actually tell you that uh, what is the thought process when you start to investing. I think it's quite nice for the beginner. All right. Thank you so much, Lexi. So uh, we will actually share with you that books as well in, in, our, in our email so that you can have a look at it. Um, maybe we'll just cover one or two more. Um, what are your views on gold investment? Uh, you know what? Last year, I actually recommend my uh, my clients to buy gold when the gold price was about thousand thousand five. Okay, somewhere there, thousand five. I asked the customer to buy because I say uh, there's a what a U.S. China trade war, a lot of uncertainty at that moment. Then I say I recommend all these clients to buy gold, but they didn't really do it because they think that stock market still going up. Why not just continue to buy stocks? But right now, I would say. So long as the COVID-19 pandemic continues, okay, if the virus is not being, is, uh, is still there, okay, to, to put out the uh, global economy, I think the goal will actually hold up at this moment. Now it's about 1,007. Uh, it's a bit high, but let's say you, if let's say you're actually holding a lot of stocks, right, at this moment, you have a lot of stocks, you have uh, a lot of risky investment, but you want to diversify, you can actually about five to ten percent of your money into the gold. I wouldn't say that it will go a lot, continue to go up to thousand eight. It's a bit far right now, but I would say there is a chances opportunity that the gold prices will continue to go up, given that the gold is considered as a safe haven asset at this moment. Yeah, I'll add on a little bit to that. Gold is uh, one of the, I guess, it's, a, it's, a, it's in a very unique situation in that it. It, it, it was used, you know, it's called the gold standard for a reason. Money was backed by gold. So gold always will have this uh, interesting sort of value to it. And that's why it can hold things up. Uh, and then sometimes you extend. So now if you look at some of the banks, they offer silver investment accounts and stuff like that. Now silver um, doesn't quite have the same uh, sort of feeling as gold, right? So silver falls under the, the other side of things of commodities, sort of, uh, I get agricultural goods, palm oil, uh, you know, 
uh, Brent crude, uh, you know, all the all, all this oil and whatever stuff. Now, the problem with investing in these um, is that uh, you don't know whether the price, uh, so I, I call it a two level risk. Uh, what it means by this, so there are some people who want the price to go up and some people want the price to go down. So you're not going to, not sure which way it's going to go. Whereas if you compare to a stock, you are quite sure with the stock that the, you know, the, the company wants to make money. And generally, if the company wants to make money, assuming the company wants to make money, the stock price should have an intention of going up. So your, your risk then is, can this company pull through and really make the money? Am I confident that this company can make money? That's what your risk is about. Whereas for, let's say, uh, any, let's say, palm oil or whatever it is, right? Are you sure it's, you know, it's, it's the risk whether it's going to go up or going to go down? So that's kind of a complicated thing. So I would consider it on a higher level risk as opposed to stocks. Uh, but gold specifically, gold, uh, I mean, over the past few years, you've seen that its resilience has been um, diminished somewhat. It's not as quite as resilient as those days. Uh, but it does hold value uh, to a certain extent. I would also say, I mean, you, you, there's some risk to it, but you could also just hold Singapore dollar. Singapore dollar is super steady, right? So uh, you could also do that as well. Uh, so if you want to hedge the value, I think nothing wrong with it, but just be careful that, I mean, it's a two-way fluctuation. Now. All right. Thank you so much, Ian, and thank you so much, Lexi. So maybe we'll just close off um, this with the last question, which is a rather personal one. Uh, that it, I mean, it gets personal for Lexi and, and Ian. Just a quick, quick, quick sharing. What is your biggest regret or mistake that you've made over your years of investing? So maybe ladies first, so Lexi can start first. <laughs> um, okay, let me think about it. Okay, uh, maybe I remember last year, actually, I went into this uh, Warren, uh, company Warren's last year. So, uh, and the time after I invested, I didn't really look at, because the warrant actually come with a, a expiry date, you know, and I didn't really look at it. I didn't monitor the time because I was so busy. So when I, once I opened my stock account, right, stock account, then I realized that, hey, how come my warrants, uh, all this value went down a lot? Because I didn't monitor first thing, and also it close to the expiry date. So I think for people like, like me, very busy sometimes, you doesn't have, doesn't have time to monitor your portfolio, uh, try not to buy warrants, okay? Because I'm very forgetful sometimes. So after I bought a warrant, I didn't really check it out and my value actually went down quite a lot. Yeah, and make losses, to be frank, I make losses. Yeah, so for, I would suggest people, if you want to buy warrants, uh, because the liquidity is very fast, okay? The volume is very fast. So make sure that when you buy, uh, really keep track your your portfolio. Don't ever be like me. Yeah, so forgetful. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So thanks, Lexi, for sharing. So don't be forgetful, and of course, uh, try to invest in something that you're more familiar with. If you're not, then uh, try not to touch it unless you are very good at it. Um, back uh, on to it, to you, Ian. What's your mistake that or regret in terms of your investing? <laughs> I guess the I would say the biggest lesson that I I learned was that. Uh, to to match the sort of uh, the effort or the uh, commitment level to whatever I'm investing. So uh, let's say when when I did uh, normally these, these are all stock related. Because stock related is the one you actually you are the one deciding. Normally the mistakes are normally related to to, to, to this area. Um, is that when I I put in some money for for some of the investments and I not to say I didn't monitor but I didn't quite do sufficient uh, uh, evaluation, right? So it's kind of like I, I see that the, the company is making money and, and yeah, they're generally quite good and I, and I take into account, uh, and this was when I was very uh, much younger, uh, sentiment, right? A little bit too much. So then, then you're not really looking at the actual numbers. Has the company made profits over the past few quarters, right? No, all I'm hearing is, wow, this company paid dividends 7% last year. <laughs> So, so you get like, you know, uh, it, it gets lost in all your thoughts and you're like, oh yeah, 7% dividend sounds pretty good. Um, but you haven't looked in further deeper and seen that, oh, they have this contract, which is something going wrong, or they have this project, which is dis uh, delayed, or, you know, the last quarter, they still made profits, but it was down from the previous quarter's profits. So you don't read in to see all these things. And then you're like, oh, wow, 7% dividend last year and the year before that, I'm put in. So I would say not doing enough uh, research. But the lesson I learned from that is basically if I were to 
want to take into do something, I, I need to realize that I do have the time to monitor, to watch. Um, I generally don't do warrants because I don't like to monitor on a day-to-day -day basis and things like that. Um, so yeah, but I mean, my mistake was, uh, I guess, not doing my research enough. All right, thank you so much, Ian and Lexi. So I guess just quickly sum up on like our discussions today. So if you know you're a starter, you if you just started on your investment, probably unit trust will be best, and then you can take the time to learn how to evaluate reports. Uh, in and you can also try mutual funds. So when you evaluate your reports, just like what Lexi has shared, some of the the things that she looks at is cash flow, debt level, profitability, and then uh, also allocate your investment, diversify, but don't over diversify. So you can always diversify in terms like property, bond related endowment, uh, and then stocks. And yeah, so cryptocurrency can also be one of it. But of course, this is always back to you as the investors and uh, in terms of your personal appetite. So thank you so much. Thank you, Lexi. And thank you, Ian, for your time. And pretty sure everybody gained something. And I hope you all gained something out of this. And yeah, let's continue to build better portfolios in the future.